I hope that you've been enjoying uh, the current preaching series that we're in, Jesus is the Story, where week after week, we've been able to see together how the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, uh, we can see that the coming of Jesus into our world has always been God's design, even from the fall of man that we saw broken relationships in Genesis chapter 3. Our relationship to God, our relationship to each other, even our relationship to the world. And I know that I've sat in your midst where you are and and I've listened carefully to what God might be speaking through the teaching of his word. And I've been challenged often and, and I've begun to see Jesus even a little bit more even when I'm reading the Old Testament. This morning I'm going to help us and we're going to take a look at Psalm 116 together. And, and I have a, a confession. I love the Psalms. I, I, I try to read one every day. I find for me, reading the Psalms bridges my intellectual mind with my emotional center in a way that for me is healthy and it's nourishing and sometimes it's even corrective. The Psalms, I find, give life to my complaints and my grumblings, not that anyone here has any of those, but, but it does it in a way that it redirects those complaints. It redirects those grumblings so that I can think about who God is, his nature, his character. I can do that more accurately. And I can, and I can remember how it is that he acts towards us, his providential care. And so this morning, as we consider Psalm 116, um, it's a personal thanksgiving um, written by the psalmist for God's care. For in this psalm, there's a, there's a very specific circumstance of deliverance from impending death that I think that as we, as we kind of work our way through it, we're going to discover that the words of this psalm can be generalized in other kinds of dramatic answers to prayer in a time of dire need. And so with your patient and your careful listening, I hope that by the time we're done, you'll agree. And I hope that you find hope during this Thanksgiving weekend. And so, um, like I like to do, if you'll join me in prayer as I consecrate this time, would you just bow your heads and would you repeat after me? Heavenly Father, speak to my heart and change my life. Amen. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the first part of this morning's scripture reading, Psalm 116, and I'm hoping that you'll keep these words open while I share with you this morning. We're just going to read the first 11 verses to start with. The psalmist writes here, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Well, the psalmist begins with what I think is a a pretty straightforward declaration. He says, I love the Lord. And why does he say that? Well, he tells us right away. We don't have to guess. Because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. I think the natural question that came to my mind when I read this is, well, why did he need mercy? What was, what was the psalmist's situation? Well, again, what I really love about this psalm is he, he doesn't make us guess. He goes on and he tells us, and it sounds pretty desperate. If you look at verse 3, 
he describes these circumstances. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol, Sheol laid hold on me. Kind of an intense word, the pangs. Have you ever been starving for relief from hunger and had like the pangs of hunger and you almost become desperate? And Snickers is, is capitalizing on that with a commercial where you, know, you do almost anything. You become unbearable when you experience pangs. The psalmist says that he suffered distress, that he suffered anguish. And if there's any doubt, he repeats his distress in verse 8 where he tells us that his soul was delivered from what? What was his soul delivered from? Death. His eyes from tears and his feet from stumbling. He sums it up in verse 9 when he simply kind of tells us he was greatly afflicted. What my friend Tanner might say, he was a hot mess. In the end, it appears that this psalmist, he's dying. For Sheol is a poetic poetic Hebrew term for the grave or end of life. And for many of us, if we're really honest, that's the greatest fear of all the fears that we encounter. And then to make matters even worse, he senses no hope. Because in verse 11, he tells us all mankind are liars. In other words, there's no truthfulness to be found in the words of other people that are speaking to him in his dire need. And when I hear that, I can hear the echoes of that classic Bible story in Job, where you guys remember his friends one by one come and surround him in his distress, and they don't really give him words of comfort, but they give him words of discouragement and words of judgment. And today, we might hear his plight, and we might say that he was experiencing a lot of heat in his life. Snares of death, pangs of Sheol, distress and anguish, tears and stumbling, greatly afflicted and surrounded by liars. And so I think you'd agree with me. He has pretty accurately described the reality of desperateness in his life. Would you agree with me? So how about you? Today, November 26, 2023, what's your situation? What, what pains you? Where are you feeling heat in your life? What challenges, what temptations, what threats, what desperate needs? are you facing? I know that every single person here today is facing something. Because I know that since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, we now live in a world that's, that's marked by brokenness. Things just don't work the way they're supposed to work. Brokenness in the way that the world works around us. Brokenness that kind of penetrates and infiltrates all of our relationships one to another, and even brokenness in the way that we relate to our maker and our creator. And so, while each one of us lives, like the psalmist says, in the land of the living, the looming coming of death and Sheol are real. And so we live in a, with the reality of a broken world. And we live with the reality that our need to be rescued. And so I ask you again to just take a moment, like the psalmist, and think, what is your situation? Maybe you face one of these challenges. Maybe it's physical. 
Maybe you've wrestled with issues of infertility or arthritis that goes at your joints or maybe sometimes uh, your brain doesn't quite work right and bipolar disorders struggle. Maybe you have the big C that nobody ever wants to hear about, cancer. Maybe your challenges maybe are emotional, mental. Maybe anxiety is a constant companion Maybe you wrestle with the reactions to traumas that you've experienced in the course of your life. Maybe it's relational. Maybe your deepest need is to overcome loneliness. Maybe you feel abandoned, struggled with the effects of divorce. Maybe you've experienced rejection from somebody that you really cared about deeply. Maybe within your your, your circles, maybe you're having to care for a dependent family member and that's really straining and stretching you to the maximum. Some of you are identifying great need in your vocation or, or financial. Maybe your career is stalled. Maybe you're wrestling with staying at home versus entering the workplace. Um, maybe you just find living in Boston terribly expensive and hard to manage. And maybe like me, you're wrestling with the coming reality of no longer being young. For some of you, the challenge, the need in your life is there's an intellectual issue that's paralyzing you. It might be wrestling with a worldview, or it might be that there's a doctrine, a teaching, a distinctive that just kind of bothers you a little bit, and you're trying to overcome that. And then maybe your need is, is, is spiritual. Maybe there's temptations in your life that just never seem to end and you wrestle with a, a habitual pattern that just you just don't feel like you can ever get to the end of. Whether it's an addiction to substances or an addiction to rage. An addiction to greed or an addiction to fame. And maybe it's the temptations of others. Church leaders that fail and therefore suck the breath out of your. See, whatever pains you today, I'm going to challenge you to identify it and give it a name. Now, I mean that, so we're actually going to stop, and I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to pause. I want you to reflect, and I want you to name what causes you pain in your mind. You don't have to speak it out. What's the heat in your life? What's the dire need that you have? And when you do that, would you just slip your hand up and let me know? You've got 15 seconds. On your mark, get set, go. Thank you. In light of the psalmist's overwhelming need, what was his response? What did he choose to do? I know how I'm tempted to respond when I'm faced with difficulties in my life. I don't know about you. I bargain. I bargain with God. And and some of you kind of know how that goes. I hurt So I offer some terms to God so that he'll relieve me of the circumstances. And then as I hurt some more, and as the heat turns up, I kind of raise the ante. I push more chips into the middle of the table in my bargaining. God, if you'll address this need, I'll do this thing for you. And if the heat gets hotter, then so does the tone and the terms and the volume of my bargaining offer. It's kind of a trade. In in, in fact, it's like the New York Stock Exchange. It's It's a contractual arrangement for the pain that I'm experiencing. Honestly, for those of you that have known me, you may have heard this story, but that was the basis for a life altering conversation that I had with God in December of 1990. When I was seated in the last row at the First Baptist Church of North Reading, I told the creator of the universe that if he healed my heart that was full of rage, 
that I would serve him like a dog for the rest of my life. By the way, he did heal my heart, but he has never treated me like a mangy mutt, not one day. That's not what the psalmist does. He was wiser than I can be. He does call on God, but he doesn't call on him to bargain. Because think about it for a second. What does the creator of the universe really need from any of us anyhow? No. Verse 1 tells us that he called on him with pleas for mercy. Verse 4 says that, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. There's, There's no bargaining going on here. You see, the psalmist was wisely remembering that God's fundamental nature is one of compassion. It's one of mercy. And that God is righteous as well. In other words, he's reliably faithful. And he tells us that. In verse 5, he says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. And he says in verse 7, that same God deals with us bountifully. He's not a little bit merciful. He's not a little bit compassionate. He's bountifully merciful. And because that's his character, like a loving father, God listens. And he doesn't just listen waiting for his chance to speak. He's not just passive, but he listens with corresponding action. Verse 2 tells us that God is the one who inclines his ear. In other words, he's leaning forward, waiting to hear from him. It's verse 6. He tells us that same God preserves the simple. I take comfort in that, preserving the simple. And he saves. Verse 8 tells us that same God that's listening delivers the psalmist from what? From death, from tears, and from stumbling. And so that brings me to my first encouragement for this morning. We should, if we're wise, if I'm wise, we should call out to God with our desperate need because he cares. He cares to listen. He cares to act. And when we call out to him, we should call out to him with confidence. Not meekly, not with hesitation, but with boldness. Now, when we look at the psalmist example, we can see that the pious or the faithful follower should probably already know that. And yet, the psalmist takes the time. He slows down. He remembers these truths. And those truths become all the more real in his distress. And I think that the psalmist in this psalm then invites us to take this psalm and apply it more generally to our experiences of need. Because the right response to the needs that we identified, whatever we perceive it to be, is to speak to God about it. And we can do that knowing that whatever brokenness that we may be experiencing, it hasn't come from his hands. It exists as a consequence of the fall of man in Genesis 3. It begins with Adam and with Eve and it, and it continues to ripple and have its effect even to this very day. But it's he, the psalmist says, that stands ready to extend mercy from those effects to anyone who calls upon him with humility and transparency and even expectation. That is who He is. That is our God. And he will surely act. My prayer for us this morning is that each one of us today calls out to God with our desperate need 
trusting that he cares, trusting that he listens, and trusting that he will heal. And so that brings me to my, my, my second encouragement, and that's that we should respond with gratitude and worship in light of God's compassionate healing. I loved the worship set we sang together. Thank you, Danny, because like, what, what an awesome preface to what we're looking at right now. Let's look at the rest of this psalm and see what the psalmist can, can share with us. Beginning in verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefit to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I can hear the chains falling. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call in the name of the Lord. I will pay my vow to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me, the psalmist asked. Render. I love that term. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pretty good cook. And I know that if you want to get the deep flavor out of a piece of meat, you render the fat in the skillet. And it oozes out and colors everything. The psalmist here is saying, how am I going to ooze the goodness in response to what I've received? What should be my response to his great mercy delivering me in a time of personal need. And it's really clear, I don't think you can miss it, that he believes that the right response to God's mercy is praise, thanksgiving, and worship. Verse 13, I'll lift up the cup of salvation and I'll call the name of the Lord. Verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. Verse 17, I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call the name of the Lord. There it is again. Verse 18 and 19, I'll pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. In the courts of the houses of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Statement after statement after statement that all seems full of intention and commitment and praise but I want to tweak my thought to you just a little bit. I know I said a right response to God's mercy is praise, thanksgiving, and worship. Because as I've come to really um, look at this psalm a little bit more carefully, I might restate it. A right response to God's mercy is praise, thanksgiving, and public worship. Let me explain. I think if you look at verses 18 and 19, you probably pretty consistent with what I just said. When he says he's going to pay his vows to the Lord, he makes it clear where that's going to happen. Where's that going to happen? In the presence of all his people. That's not a private moment. He makes it clear that in the courts of this house of the Lord, in your midst, and it seems to be pretty obviously pointing towards public worship in the temple in Jerusalem. And in fact, this principle is so important, he repeats it both in verse 18 and he also mentions it in verse 14 above. So he's redundant, he's repetitive. He emphasizes it again. There's an interesting commitment that he makes in verse 13. I will call on the name of the Lord. I know you caught that. And he repeats it again in verse 17. And it sounds, if you were paying close attention to the first reading that we did, in the beginning, it sounds similar to verse 4 when he was in great distress and he said, Then I called upon the name of the Lord. Now, scholars tell us that this phrase can be a general term for sort of invoking a God or a deity in silent or private prayer. But more often, this particular phrase, to call in the name of the Lord, refers to a prayer that is part of public worship. 
And some examples of that go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, when on the birth of his son Seth, the scriptures teach that Adam started to gather everyone so they could call on the name of the Lord. In Genesis 12, Abram, it says, built an altar for gathering others so they could call upon the name of the Lord. This is a recurrent theme that calling on the name of the Lord is something that we do together. And I think it's in this spirit that that's what's happening here in Psalm 116. And then if you look carefully in verse 13, he attaches it first to lifting up the cup of salvation and then in verse 17 to offering sacrifices of thanksgiving. And both of those images that are linked again are consistent with prescribed practices, prescribed rituals for Jewish temple worship. In other words, they happened when we were together. And so I think it's important that we recognize as we read this that our thanksgiving for very personal deliverances of God is properly consummated in very public worship of that very same God. And that's not to say that it's forbidden to thank God in private. Of course we want to do that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and throughout the week from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed. But the psalmist is not content to reserve that thanksgiving just for himself and just in silent meditation. Rather, his worshipful gratitude is going to be released in expressions of public worship so that not only God receives the words of gratefulness, but others hear the testimony of God's graciousness. Others get the benefit of his righteousness and others gain the hope of his mercy. And so going forward, the psalmist is going to walk before the Lord in the land of the living because he's been freed from the tyranny of the grave. He's going to believe that the, in the God who loves him no matter what, and he is going to render his thankful worship for all to see and for all to benefit. It's sort of like to borrow that same stock metaphor. If he's a privately held stock, he's going to go public on the New York Stock Exchange. And so when I began to have a deeper appreciation of this in, in, in my study, I asked myself, well, does this have any implications for us? And I think you would probably say, well, sure. So just bear with me as I share a couple of nuggets of information. Study after study makes it abundantly clear that we here in Greater Medford, we live in one of the, the least religious regions in the United States. Massachusetts consistently ranks at the top of any list that identifies where people self-identify as having no religion at all. Um, there's studies I've seen that list that at more than 67% or two-thirds of the people that we're in the midst of. And so I don't find it surprising that overall church attendance in Massachusetts is actually quite low. You know, if you think about it, it's rather logical. Why would we expect people who do not know the love of Jesus to have a committed approach to gathering regularly to worship him and to express gratitude? If you're here this morning and you're, you're exploring the claims of Christ, like, we're so glad you're here. But most people in Massachusetts, that's not where they find themselves. What's more concerning to me is some of the emerging evidence about regular attendance for Christians, followers of Christ, disciples that confess that Jesus is their Lord and worthy of their worship. According to um, uh, Barna Research Group, 16% of all Christians who regularly attended church before COVID no longer attend at all. 16%. Throughout the 20th and even the beginning of this century, regardless of the faith tradition, being a regular church attender meant that you were going to church once a week or maybe even more. And today, most church members and even most church leaders define regular church attendance as maybe two times a month. And some, and I've seen this, advocating for one time a month. 
in a survey that was taken just last year, 2022, amongst evangelical Bible-believing congregations, attendance has dropped noticeably across all frequency categories. Those that see themselves as regular, it's dropped. Those that saw themselves as occasional, that has dropped. And those that see themselves as infrequent, that has dropped. At RHC, I'm blessed to just say that we're in a season of renewed momentum. I think you sense that. I sensed it even this morning as I was worshiping with you. As we have regathered and as we continue to reach out, we're experiencing a renewal of our corporate worship experience. And, and I'm encouraged by that. Despite the statistics I just shared with you, I'm encouraged by that. I hope you are too. But challenges still exist. Right attitudes, we still need to encourage them amongst ourselves. I'm concerned as a pastor that sometimes the best motivations for coming together regularly as the body of Christ are sometimes overtaken by what I would call lesser motivations. A common example might be uh, for someone who's declining uh, personal attendance is, I'm not getting fed like I used to. Or my child's activity schedule conflicts with Sunday worship. Or I can, I'm so busy and I need to sort of catch up on my rest. Or I can worship God at the beach or in the mountains or at some other special experience. And as one of your pastors, I hear those thoughts and I hear others. And if I'm honest, I don't feel judgmental. I feel grieved. I don't deny the reality of some of those concerns. But I would lovingly care front us in light of what the psalmist is telling us this morning in Psalm 116. A major region, reason why our corporate worship is important, our commitment to overcome distractions and challenge barriers to assembling together, is when you come to Sunday worship, you get to testify with your words, your song, your offerings, your service, and your presence, that God is worthy of thanksgiving and praise for what he has done this year, what he has done this week, what he has done this very morning, and that you're trusting by faith that he'll continue to incline his ear towards you and continue to respond with compassion and with mercy. And if you're not in that spot on any given Sunday and you come to Sunday worship, you get to hear the testimony of others who have experienced his mercy and you can enter into their thanksgiving and by being here and by hearing, you will be strengthened for that day and the days to come. And if that's not enough, then together we all get to praise and thank and give gratitude and worship God for his character and for his deeds from the past, in the present, and confident of his grace in the future. This is the right response to God's mercy that the psalmist is encouraging here in Psalm 116. In fact, it's, it's so important as a DNA of the Redemption Hill Church experience that it's even reflected in what we call a member's covenant, which is just when somebody becomes a member, it's a, it's a set of commitments and promises that we make to each other. And one of them revolves around this notion of community because the gospel creates a new community of people who live life together as the church, we will meet regularly and fulfill the one another commands of scripture by counting others, including God, by the way, more significant than ourselves. And so just here's a question that I'm going to ask us to answer. Just think about this for a second. What acts, what words of praise and thanksgiving and worship are you bringing to public worship?
regularly, like every Sunday. Unless, of course, there's just undeniable barriers. I know some of us are shut in. I know some of us work in healthcare. My wife's a nurse. Every third weekend, she has to extend mercy. I know some of you are brand new moms where you haven't slept a wink all night long and you're barely surviving your day. This message isn't for you. Personal deliverance by God should be a benefit to the whole people and therefore the entire congregation can share in giving thanks just like we have this morning. This echoes what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12 when he was giving instructions for living sacrificial lives together in a community of faith. He said, and I know you guys will recognize these words, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So my simple question in light of that is, how can we do that if we don't come together? We can't. If you're here regularly, keep coming. Don't be discouraged. God is building his church. If your participation is occasional or infrequent, then I'm going to encourage you, no guilt, no pressure. But just consider, are the barriers to your participation, can they be overcome? Just aim for a little bit higher level of consistency as a reflection of God's consistent providential care for you. And if there's some way we can help you to overcome a barrier, let us know. If you're joining us online, we're thankful for your participation. I'm glad Pastor John uh, greeted them this morning. But if it's at all possible, find an opportunity to come join us in person because we want to hear your stories of God's faithfulness and we want to celebrate your stories as well. And for those that have yet to join us, let's keep praying for them. Let's seek their welfare. Let's invite them to join, to join us. And then, this is crucial, let's be here when they come so we can welcome them and we can, we can share our stories of gratitude for what God is doing in our lives. My prayer for us this morning is that each one of us today responds with gratitude and worship, both private and public, in light of God's compassionate healing. Well, during our time of worship, early in our service, our music team uh, read aloud a story from the Gospel of Luke that's found in chapter 17. You could flip there if you wanted to, but I think it might help us. We heard that on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voice saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Kind of reminds me of what we just read in Psalm 116, doesn't it? And here, can, can you not just hear the desperation of one like the psalmist, but the desperation of ten? Since the beginning of my sabbatical earlier this year, I've read this passage, I'm estimating, at least 200 times this year. I've been drawn to it. The Spirit of God just keeps running me through it. And yet, no matter how many times I've read it, I still struggle to really enter into the absolute desperation of these lepers. As I studied further, I discovered, and this wouldn't be surprising to you, life as a leper was much more desperate than I had realized. And certainly we all recognize the physical toll that necrotizing skin disease might have from someone who's cut off from modern medicine. But there was a ton of implications. There were some massive challenges. There was even more intense pain that a leper would face. They would be cut off from their friends and their family They would be ostracized to leave their homes. Social relationships would be completely severed. Isolation would be their norm because everybody feared their very presence. In some instances, family members might actually follow them in their wandering 
But if that happened, it would produce emotional and mental anguish and guilt. Imagine the constant reaction of others that are repulsed by your appearance. How does anybody's self-esteem hold up in that? To a person, they were poor. There was no vocational opportunities. There were no jobs for lepers. There were no social safety nets. There were no financial resources available. They were fully dependent on the generosity of others, the same others that were repulsed by them. And they were caught in a spiritual trap. For most of Israel, the marks of any disease, especially leprosy, was a sure sign of God's disfavor with you. It was a mark of hidden sin and a cursed life. And to make it even worse, they could not go to the temple. They could not enter the local synagogue. Their disease made them persona non grata and without hope. The life of a leper was one that was filled with poverty and homelessness, rejection and isolation, emotional trauma and despair, not to mention the obvious physical pain and ultimately spiritual desperation. So when these ten lepers see Jesus at a distance, a moment of hope flickers. Somewhere they had heard of his amazing acts of compassionate healing. And they called out in the midst of their desperate need. Jesus, Master. Have mercy on us. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They've heard of Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, and they want to be healed. Luke goes on to tell us that when he saw them, the ten lepers, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went and they were cleansed. We're not told that he touched them. There's no story of detail, just that he saw, that he felt, that he spoke, and that he healed their bodies. It seems like it was kind of a drive-by healing. And as they followed his instruction to fulfill the requirements of certifying their healing at the temple, they left knowing that pain would be a memory. Families would be reunited. Jobs might be waiting. Synagogues could be attended. And total rejection would be reversed. It's a great story. But it doesn't stop there. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Why did that tenth leper return? What do you think? While they all had heard of Jehovah Rapha, this leper recognized Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals in Jesus. He recognized the one who the psalmist was pointing us towards. He saw the character and he saw the compassion of Jesus and he saw the power. And so in light of that, he responded with gratitude and worship. And why didn't the other nine come back? All ten of them stood at a distance. All of them called out for mercy. 
All were healed, but only one crossed the distance. Only one fell at the feet of Jesus. And only one worshipped him in intimacy. You see, there's a kind of healing, what I, what, I, what I call the small letter H healing, that we ask for and that we seek. Yet there's a kind of healing, capital H is how I see it, that we really need, an ultimate healing. And it was the faithfulness of an outsider, a Samaritan, who was able to demonstrate that a responsiveness to God's covenantal love that's manifested not just in physical healing, but in healing the gap that lies between the heart of a man and the heart of God. is bridged through this one named Jesus. And these other nine, I don't think, saw the gap. And I know that they didn't recognize Jehovah Rapha. And so Jesus entered, uh, ended this encounter in a way that we've heard in a lot of other gospel stories. He said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And that's my third and final encouragement. That we should see our greatest need. We should see it met by Jesus, who's the true and the greater healer. And why is Jesus the true and greater healer? Because his healing is total. Yes, he restores our bodies, either now with a temporary healing, because we all die eventually, or with an ultimate healing for then when he resurrects our bodies. For the lepers, the nine, he healed their bodies and they reaped the natural benefits of that healing. There were great things that happened because Jesus interceded into their life. But for that one leper, his healing was total and he reaped an eternal supernatural healing that was worth far more. So my question to you today is what defines you today? Where do you see your need? I, I, I hope personally that you're encouraged to call out to the Lord with every need that you perceive. And some of them we may share, some may be unique to your circumstances. And when he moves to address your need, I hope you respond with gratitude. I hope you respond with thanksgiving. I hope you respond with worship. Certainly private, but definitely public as well. But my greater prayer for us this morning is that every one of us sees the ultimate need that every human being that's ever been born has, the need to be reconciled to God and to live with him in intimate relationship. For it's he who envisions each one of us. It's he that loves each one of us. It's he who stands ready to respond when we call out to him in saving mercy and compassionate needs. For he is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. I want to wrap up with a final story. Several years ago, I was sitting with a young woman who was preparing herself for baptism, and we were talking about getting ready to tell her story. And she said, Oh, Pastor John, I wish my story was more dramatic. And I said, What do you mean? And she began to kind of basically tell me the story about basically how nice a person she was. And she was. She said, I, I, wish, I wish I was more like a biker chick with tatted up and recovered from drugs and causing mayhem up and down the East Coast. Right? Because then my story would be more dramatic. I said, oh, Haley. Her name was Haley. She gave me permission to share the story. Haley, you're a nurse practitioner, right? She said, yeah. You've been to cardiac arrest before? Yeah. Did everybody survive? No. So you've been around people that have lost their lives and are dead? Yeah. Any of them ever sit up? No. If they had, would that be dramatic? I said, Haley, the reason you don't see your story as dramatic is because you don't recognize your true condition before coming and encountering Jesus. 
The Bible, Haley, teaches that you were dead. You were dead in your sin and you met Jehovah Rapha and now you're alive in Christ. What could be more dramatic than a dead person coming to life? Ten lepers asked for healing. Nine got healing, small letter H. One got healing, capital letter H. Because Jesus is the true and greater healer, we can bring our most desperate needs to him with trust and praise him for his merciful, faithful, and ultimate response. This morning as we close, I'm going to invite you to come forward during our time of prayer. I'm going to invite you to come and to call out to Jesus. Just like the psalmist, just like the leper. Some of you might have a specific need, one that you identified when you slipped your hand up earlier during this time. And if so, come down as an act of awareness, an act of dependence. Let let one of our prayer team members pray with you about that. Or perhaps some of you are beginning to recognize, just like this 10th leper, Jehovah Rapha, the true and greater healer, the one that can bring total healing between you and God. And so just like the grateful leper, come down as an act of faith and let our prayer team pray with you. But in either case, just come. I saw a lot of hands go up. I kind of think it would be good if you took advantage of this time. Let's pray. Lord, we read in your word that Jesus came out of heaven and he came straight into our pain. Psalm 116 reminds us that gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful and that you meet us where we hurt and you deliver us from all that separates us from you. And so on this weekend of Thanksgiving, we tell you how grateful we are for that. Help us to respond with even more praise and worship for you are a holy, good, and loving God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.